Welcome to the Pilot Podcast, where we watch the pilot episodes of TV shows and answer your question, should I watch this? My name is BJ. And my name is Me Too. And this week, we're checking out Medical Police on Netflix, Briar Patch on USA Network, Interrogation on CBS All Access, Indebted on NBC, Katie Keene on The CW, and Lego Masters on Fox. Stay tuned to the end to find out if BJ can be roped into sciencing his way to the CDC and federal agencies. Sounds like you're talking about the plot of Medical Police on Netflix. You want to dive into that show? Two U.S. doctors are stationed in Brazil. This is a spinoff of Children's Hospital, which is a hospital for expatriates based in Sao Paulo. And these two doctors find a deadly virus and they're recruited by a bioterrorism agency of the CDC to find out why this virus is spreading and who is spreading it. Aaron Hayes plays Dr. Lola Spratt. And Rob Hubel plays Dr. Owen Maestro, and they're the ones who are pulled in to this international conspiracy. And then Agent Sloan McIntyre at the CDC is played by Sarah Yu Rao. One thing that really caught me off guard when we started the show was that the title suggests it's a serious drama, but this is definitely a dark comedy. I thought that Medical Police would be an intense show, and instead, it's this absurdist comedy. And... I think the fake out is because it's a spinoff of Children's Hospital, which also has a name that makes you think sad, going to be disappointed a lot as kids get sick. And instead, it's an absurdist comedy from the mind of Rob Corddry, who also executive produces Medical Police on Netflix. They even start the show off with someone over the loudspeaker of the hospital telling the joke, what do you call a web making contest between spiders? A spinoff. So they just couldn't more explicitly be absurdist about the show. I actually like the absurd medical behavior in the hospital. We see them treating patients when they discover this virus, and they're even asking the question, what is going on? You have a nurse reacting like, ooh, look at that rash. And they just roll patients away once they've done all they feel like doing. Literally roll them away. Yes, just free rolling on their own. So it was weird to see a hospital like that where healthcare is questionable. And then to switch from that situation, which I guess is more reminiscent of Children's Hospital, to a spy thriller comedy. So speaking of spy thriller comedy, how did you feel about the bioterrorism plot? It's very timely, which they definitely didn't know about the coronavirus when they produced this. It was too timely. (laughs) I think it's something that people think about more often over the past few years with advances in biomedical technology. So I think it's a worthwhile plot, especially for a spy theme where you want to figure out who is releasing this deadly virus that you can't just see. So it's a very scary weapon. And it was interesting to see the CDC having a special task force, mostly because I know people who work at the CDC and you wouldn't expect them to have a task force. Although maybe if they did, it would be similar to this one run by McIntyre. When you imagine someone who works at a health agency, butt kicking agent is not what immediately comes to mind. True. And that's something we should talk about. Both Owen and Lola were pretty good at fights. They were held up at gunpoint. They were jumping out of planes. They explain Owen's skills a little bit because he used to be a cop before becoming a brain surgeon. Typical career path. Yes. But I was surprised by Lola being ready to go as well. There is that common trope of bringing in people off the street. They happen upon a crime and then an agent is like, you're the only 
only one who can help us. And now this person who has no background in security is responsible for the fate of the world and everything is on their shoulders. And it was funny to see this take on it where there's no moment where they stumble. They're just ready. They slip right into the role easily. And not only are they not trained to be spies, in the beginning, Lola even tells the CDC, I'm not an expert on viruses. I shouldn't be the one telling you how this works. (laughs) How did you feel about the virus explanation as our resident scientist? It was not helpful for the plot, but just in general for how viruses work. You can think of the cell as a hula hoop and that giant bag of pinto beans, which they happen to have at the CDC in a secret bunker. That is kind of what virus particles do. They fill up and multiply in a cell and then they explode out of the cell and keep spreading. You're telling me the next time you have to explain something at work, you can grab a hula hoop, put it on the ground, grab a bag of beans, pour it into the hula hoop, and now you can science your way through this. Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty standard explanation that's used by real scientists. Excellent. That's good to know. Don't quote me on that. One thing I like about the show is it's a vehicle for Erin Hayes' comedy. She was killed off of the show Kevin Can Wait in season one. It was a shocking death for a family sitcom. And so I'm excited that she has this chance now to be in another comedy and one that centers her, not someone else. Because in Kevin Can Wait, she was definitely the wife of the protagonist. It's always good to have another chance. How did you feel about the action scenes generally? Because it is funny mixing comedy and action. I think that combination works well. We're so used to all of the action movies that we have a good sense of what we expect in action scenes. And so it's fun to play around with that concept by adding in humor. And I think they found a good balance between the two. And there was really high production value. Yeah, they have a Netflix budget and you can tell. They skydive in one scene and it's filmed very well. I agree. All right, Beach. So I think we can get to our ratings. Let's do it. Me too. What would you rate Medical Police on Netflix? I probably would watch again casually. I am not an absurdist humor person, but I know that people love Children's Hospital and I'm sure that they'll love this show as well. So I want to give it a few episodes and see if I can get into more absurdism. But if you like absurdist comedy, this I think will be a great show for you. What do you think, Beach? I'm in a similar boat. I would give this would watch again while cooking dinner, have it in the kitchen. My main focus is on the hot stove and oven, but I can at least hear what's going on. I too am not the biggest absurdist comedy fan, although I actually think I prefer absurd comedy more than situational comedy. Hmm. But either way, I'm not a big comedy person, and this isn't changing my opinion on that. Thank you, Beach. Speaking of mysteries... Let's take things to a hotter place with USA's Briar Patch. On Briar Patch, we are going down to Texas. And this is actually an anthology series, which is based on a novel by the same name by author Ross Thomas. And we're introduced to our main character, Allegra Dill. She is an investigator and also works on a special Senate subcommittee. She has a mysterious job, to be honest. And she comes to her hometown because her sister, Felicity Dill, was recently murdered. She was also an investigator. And so we're finding Allegra wandering around 
around this town in Texas where there are zoo animals on the loose and she's trying to talk to other people on the police force like Felicity's, I guess, boyfriend, Gene Colder, as well as some of her local contacts to get a real sense of what's going on and what was Felicity doing prior to this death. And a second plot is this special Senate subcommittee she works for has tasked her with interrogating her friend Jake Spivey to get some information about him and one of his former employers, Clyde Brattle. So Mitu, what did you think about the whole mystery between what's going on with Jake Spivey and solving the murder of Felicity? It's funny because we just talked about the absurdism in medical police, and I feel like some of that is here in this show as well. I wouldn't say absurdism, more surrealism. It feels like there's a filter over the whole show, and the mysteries are so mysterious, if that makes sense. And the characters all have a million layers that we know are there, but we are only seeing the surface because no one is cracking yet. And there are random wild and exotic animals walking around. That makes it very strange when you just see her wandering around and occasionally Allegra will zone out and the sound will be a little muffled and her vision will get unfocused. And the next thing you know, you see a giraffe in someone's yard. It makes you question what she's really experiencing and what we're seeing in her mind. There are moments in the show where you go, okay, I can't accept everything I'm seeing at face value. Also in the hospital, where we don't see anything absurd, but her behavior and how everyone reacts to her just wandering around at her own pace seemed a little off. How do you feel about the central mystery of the show? It's a good, solid premise. Your sister has died. You haven't seen her in three years. People are questioning if Allegra really does know what her sister is like, what she likes to do, how she would keep her home, the fact that she was in a relationship. This all seems plausible. But like you said, the mystery is still very mysterious in that we weren't given many details to start with. And Allegra doesn't make any major discoveries in this first episode. So it's hard to get a good sense of where this is going. In this first episode, it feels like they believe the strength of who done it, who killed Felicity will draw you in. And then you as the viewer will be patient enough to wait for revelations of where the show will go next. In this first episode, we have no sense of their relationship. We know that they're close enough that she would show up and take leave in order to investigate what happened. But beyond that, we have no sense of their bond if they were close at all. Like you said, BJ, people doubt how much she even knows her sister. And then we have no sense of Felicity herself. There's just tiny nuggets that implant some mystery around what could have gotten her killed, but not much about her as a person. And then especially with Allegra, we just don't know anything about her. That brick wall is up. It's so strange that the main character's backstory is being danced around. We meet a friend of Felicity, A.D. Singe, who brings up the fact that Allegra used to go by Pickle Dill or Pick Dill back in high school. Allegra references that something happened the last time she was home, which was 12 years ago. Like I mentioned earlier, she hasn't seen her sister in three years. So there are all of these little nuggets of her backstory. She has an interesting relationship with the senator, but we still don't really know who she is. We don't even know much about her career. 
I was very confused when she met with the senator because it was such a blip in the episode that she worked for him that I genuinely forgot. And then (laughs) we saw him a little bit later and I had to rewind. I was like, why is she in the room with the senator? Speaking of the room, because she's staying in a hotel room while visiting. I just have to ask you, me too. Yes. Why doesn't she just push that plate of rotten room service food away from her room? There's a tray of food left in the hallway. The hotel says they are understaffed because someone was attacked by this free roaming tiger. And she's complaining about it because it's right next to her door. But wouldn't you just kick it a little further down the hall? If I saw it outside of my room, I would actually ask to change rooms. Mm. There are going to be bugs, and I don't want those near my things. This seems like a very small town. I assume this is the place you can stay. So you need to move me to a a different floor. Speaking of that, is she walking everywhere? I thought about that at one point in the episode. I can't tell because y'all, this town is hot. There is an Instagram (laughs) filter over the camera where all you feel is sweltering heat as you watch this show. Yet Rosario Dawson heels flowing suits, big suits, and she can wear a suit as anyone knows but she must be so hot that's what i kept thinking it (laughs) appeared as though she was walking around and so she just must have been so hot so i think that goes back to our theory that we've hinted at that this felt very surreal and dreamlike maybe it's not that hot maybe the plate of food isn't really there maybe the tiger isn't real what are your theories for Allegra's experience, Felicity's murder, and also the interest in Jake Spivey as a character. It's very difficult to make theories because they give you so little in this first episode. So any theories with regard to Allegra and Felicity is, of course, there's going to be more to discover with Felicity. There are some hints that she may have been a bad cop. I don't think that will be the case. It just feels like a red herring. And I think we'll find out she was not a crooked cop and didn't siphon money because there's an unexplained amount of money in her possession. For theories around Jake Spivey, he really came out of nowhere To me, they built up that conversation between them in the episode. But then when it happened, I was so confused. I actually texted BJ about it so that he would explain what I was watching. So it's difficult for me to make a theory beyond maybe because he's so rich. If the surveillance of him gets a little too hot, he's bouncing from that town. That's fair. We don't have much to work off of. There's definitely going to be more to Felicity that we're just going to have to wait to uncover. I believe her lover, Gene Colder, is going to be a key part of understanding that mystery. And I also think maybe even connected to all the mysteries and Allegra herself, A.D. Singe, Felicity's friend, I think he knows a lot more than he has told us so far. Totally agreed. All right, Beach, what would you give Briarpatch on USA Network? I'm going to give this a would watch again casually. The mystery seems solid, and I like this dreamlike, surreal look at this world. So I want to give it another chance, see where it goes. I'm interested enough to want to know where the show is going, but they definitely need to give us more. If the episodes continue to progress like this, where you're just getting tiny, tiny little nuggets of knowledge, I don't know that I can keep watching beyond two or three more. That's fair. Do you know another show that asks a lot of questions with few answers? Go ahead and tell me. Interrogation on CBS All Access. 
Wow, Beach, what a segue. <laughs> in interrogation, the show is based on a true crime story that spans 30 years. A young man, Eric Fisher, is charged and eventually convicted of murdering his mom. And viewers who watch the show are given the opportunity to watch the pilot episode and then click around and watch the episodes to review the evidence, not in any sort of sequential order. So CBS All Access gives you the opportunity to click on episodes Episodes that present different evidence so that you yourself can review all of the information and decide for yourself, did this guy do it? The person investigating him is Detective David Russell, played by Peter Sarsgaard, and Eric Fisher is played by David Galner. This is a really fun concept where since each episode is based on an interrogation case file, they really want to make it more like a, I guess, murder mystery book where it's up to you to try and solve it as you go along and you can pick up the pieces of these different cases at your own pace. And then the idea is you'll stream the finale and figure out how this story is going to conclude and figure out for yourself, did you pick up on all the clues that they were dropping or did you get tricked? in one of the episodes. And I think that's really clever. Like Bandersnatch, I like that these streaming services are playing with the medium of television and giving you some more interactive options. The show creator Anders Wiedemann actually came up with the concept. He said around 20 years ago, he was traveling around the world and he, to quote him, ended up in this Filipino French family's home. And the man who lived there was divorced, his wife was gone. And Wiedemann, the show creator, was told not to go into one specific room. But because he was 20 years old, he went into that room and he discovered a shoebox, which was stuffed with mementos such as love letters, divorce papers, and even recordings of phone calls between the husband and wife. And so he was inspired by those items stored in that shoebox to tell a story taking different perspectives to tell one story. That's what he needed to come up with this idea. Wouldn't you say that that's how evidence works in every single crime show? Yeah, but he needed to sneak into a room in someone's home to be inspired. Also, he's alone in a country too. So he's essentially at the will of this Filipino French family's home. That's too much, Me too. That fun fact was too much. <laughs> anyway, Eric Fisher, who was in the first episode booked and not convicted, do you think he did it with just what we've seen in the pilot episode? No. I agree. I do not think he's guilty. It's based on a true crime story, and I believe the person in the story is convicted and has been claiming innocence for two decades, three decades. But based on the evidence presented, I don't think that Eric Fisher did it. And in the show, they play with the concept of having this detective investigated by IA for some of the tactics that he uses to arrest people. He even said to someone when he arrested Eric Fisher, I'm going to have him confessing before dinner tonight. And this show is set in a time where the LAPD was investigated for a lot of corruption. Federal oversight actually had to come in during the heyday of the 80s and 90s LAPD. There was even a joke in Rush Hour, which I didn't understand when I was a kid. But Chris Tucker turns to Jackie Chan and says, LAPD are the most hated cops in the world. Even my mama tells people at church I'm a drug dealer. <laughs> 
So basically, because of this backdrop of corruption, I also can't take everything the detective does at face value. With Detective David Russell, it's very clear from the start at the crime scene, he's convinced that Eric is guilty, and he's willing to do whatever he can to get that confession on that first day, really. He doesn't want to let Eric go before getting the confession, to the point where he uses Eric's dad as a tool to manipulate his son. The police force know how they want this to end and are willing to abuse people like Eric to get the final outcome that they want. One of the things that stood out to me the most amongst all the abusive things that David Russell did was not letting Eric wash the blood off his hands. Yeah, it was definitely a tactic. Everything that he was doing was part of his strategy, and it was just not fun to watch. Agreed. So, Me Too, what would you rate interrogation on CBS All Access? I would recommend playing with the concept and clicking around different episodes. I don't think this show was exactly for me. I don't like shows that are so dark and gritty. There was a lot of aggressive language and blood, and that's not exactly for me. For my crime procedural hive, y'all know we like Monk, Psych, maybe Law and Order. We don't like when things get a little too dicey, and so this was just a bit much for me, but I can't ignore how cool the concept concept is. So I'll probably click around and review different case file style episodes. But this was too dark for me to follow seriously. What about you? Similar, but a little more positive. I really like the concept. I might check out a few more case files. I think we might do the same thing in that we won't watch all 10 episodes. We have this pilot down, check out a few in the middle that seem interesting, and then head straight to the finale. That's exactly right. Me too. Let's play a quiz show. Okay. Rap icon Cardi B once said, nothing in this world that I like more than A, podcasts, B, watching TV shows, C, checks, or D, all of the above. Okay. I don't have to phone a friend on this one. I know she's an all of the above girl, but the lyric ends with C, checks, final answer. Ding, ding, ding. You win a podcorn ad. Hey! Because Podcorn makes sure those checks clear between podcasters and sponsors for the best possible content partnership relationships. And don't even get me started on their top-notch customer service. Wow, where can I learn more? At podcorn.com. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. Speaking of messed up mother-son relationships, let's talk about NBC's Indebted. So Indebted, a new comedy by Dan Levy on NBC, starring Adam Pally. He plays Dave and Dave and his wife, Rebecca. Very happy couple, nice home, two kids. End up in this situation where Dave's parents, Debbie and Stu, and you'll recognize Debbie as the wonderful Fran Drescher, they are in debt. They have spent all of their money. They didn't have health insurance. So then when Debbie needed to get her ACL repaired, they went into even more debt to pay for that. Stu's as seen on TV, contraptions like the slanket and the edible coasters are no longer bringing in bank and they have now moved in with Dave and his family. So you can just imagine all the wonderful hijinks this is going to lead to when the parents who have spending problems move in with the son and his family who is inconsistently portrayed as the more responsible one. This cast is pretty stacked. His wife, Rebecca, is played by Abby Elliott and Stu is played by Steven Weber, who we recognize from Wings and iZombie. Oh, yeah. And you know, I love me some Adam Pally. Really? I do. Because Happy Endings was a criminal 
criminally underwatched show and was eventually canceled. But it's all on Hulu. Listeners indebted. I'm not sure about happy endings. Y'all need to watch immediately. So how did you feel about the central conflict of the sitcom? Maybe I am thinking too much while watching this show, but I just didn't understand why Debbie and Stu needed to move in with their son and his family. I get that they are going to try and renovate their home to sell it and make money. But from my understanding of renovations, they could stay in the home while that process is going on, especially when their own son is leading the renovation efforts. It wouldn't be difficult for them to stay at home. And most people have to do some level of that where they just keep moving rooms until everything is finished. They have a large finished basement, which they could just live in. I also thought the show had a missed opportunity where they go into debt because of medical debt, which is something a lot of people experience. And most Americans basically can be sidelined tomorrow by an unexpected medical bill. But instead of doing that, they make the parents so unlikable because they are blowing their money left and right. And a common refrain in the pilot episode from Dave is stop spending money to his parents. Like it becomes funny for him to just keep saying that. But I was just so confused by their choices that it didn't make me laugh. Yeah, it just became frustrating, even to the viewers. I also didn't understand the premise of the show because the show opens with Dave and Rebecca cleaning out their kids' stuff and saying that the kids are more independent now. We can live our own lives. We don't have to be taking care of them around the clock. But when we finally see the kids in the third act of the show, they're like six years old. You are not fully independent parents. Those kids are relying on you to live. They definitely exaggerated that. But I do know parents are very happy to get rid of baby and infant gear and clothes. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's great to get rid of the clutter. They even made a Marie Kondo joke at the top of whether things spark joy. But it was strange that they leaned into that because I think what they're trying to say is now that the kids are more independent, they have two new babies coming in in the form of Dave's parents. Yeah, he calls them two new children he has to raise. But you have very young children you need to actively raise. And we, you pointed this out when we watched, don't see them much in the episode. They're referenced all the time, but we see them in one scene. The kids are spoken of, but not seen or heard. Which is probably for the best because I don't think those grandparents could take care of them. So wherever they are, they're probably doing fine. How did you feel about Fran's return to sitcoms? Growing up with the nanny, I will always have a soft spot for her. So it's great to see her in another show. But I think that's where that ends. Just great that she's working. I always want Fran to be cashing big checks. And I know that at network sitcom, she's probably doing that. What did you think of Dave? Everyone's connected to him. Did you like his wife, his sister, his friend? I thought it was odd that in some moments, Dave was the responsible one. We often see Adam Pally play the goofball. He played the goofball doctor on Mindy Project. He played the goofball friend on Happy Endings. So it's interesting to see him portrayed as the responsible one. But he wasn't always on this show because sometimes he was treated like a dumb character, like the way that his wife and his mom would talk to him. You think, oh, he's a goofball. But then there are moments where he's serious and talking about the renovation and you go, all right, He's the strong one of the family, the responsible one. So I thought tonally it was odd, especially to make so many different choices of how he'll be characterized in a single episode. 
And they also exaggerate that with his friend Ravi, who is a less intelligent person than him, but also not really because they're business partners and he successfully takes care of the kids. Everyone's pretty inconsistent on this show. Yes. And poor Rebecca. Should we talk about the fundraising attempts? Sure. So one other plot point, because this scene, we would have reacted very differently if this was us. Dave's parents want to hop on that fundraising train because they do have medical bills. So they do a Facebook fundraiser, which I think is just their way of doing a GoFundMe. And in their video, poor Rebecca, Dave's wife, is seen changing clothes in the background, completely naked. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty sure Stu was aware of that before they uploaded the video. And that's on the internet forever. And she casually moves past this because at the end of the video, the parents give her a compliment and they're like, we see her as a real daughter. That's not even just a violation. That video is out there forever. There is no way to scrub that off the internet. And people know it's her. She's getting messages. And she liked some of the compliments. And all it took was a compliment for her to forgive the parents. All right, Beach. what would you rate NBC's Indebted? Well, me too. I would not watch again. It's not for me. Good luck, Fran. Good luck, Adam. I would recommend to our audience to watch The Nanny, pilot of which we reviewed a while ago, still holds up tremendously. Yes. I would recommend even some of Fran's recent sitcoms, Happily Divorced and Living with Fran. They were really fun and definitely happy endings. You need to watch that show. So that's my recommendation. Solid. All right, Beach. Speaking of hype dreams and no money, let's take it over <laughs> to the Riverdale universe with CW's Katie Keene. We are doing a new Riverdale spinoff, which unlike The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, is more directly connected to Riverdale because Josie from Josie and the Pussycats is one of the main cast members. So our main character, Katie Keene, she is a seamstress and a dreamer living in New York with her friends and boyfriend, and she works for a fabulous luxury department store, Lacey's. And really, this whole show is just about how she's nice, talented fashionable, hardworking, and doing great things. I don't know what else to say. She has very few flaws. I think what BJ is getting at, which I think is important to talk about on the show, is there's no conflict. So I'm not sure if it's because Riverdale is such a dark show about a suburb that they decided to swing so far in the other direction and make New York this incredibly happy, idealistic place. But she and her friends resolve all of their problems within this first episode. Maybe that's how we should all be living our lives. I think our first episode of our podcast We reviewed Life Sentence, which was another Lucy Hale vehicle on CW, and that show felt like a movie. It just was a perfect 42-minute nugget of completed storylines, and we didn't want to watch more episodes because it just felt like everything was resolved by the end of it, and that's sort of how this show was structured. The way it wraps up by the end, if there wasn't a second episode, I think you could be satisfied. Yes. But how about we break it down? Do you want to go through everyone's dreams and their struggles? Katie Keene, again, played by Lucy Hale, is an aspiring fashion designer. She lives with Josie McCoy, played by Ashley Murray, whom we recognize from Riverdale. She's an aspiring singer. She is dating K.O. Kelly, played by Zane Holtz. He's a bouncer and a personal trainer, but wants to be a boxer. And she and Josie also live with Jorge slash Ginger Lopez 
Lopez, played by Johnny Beauchamp, and he performs in both drag and as Jorge and has dreams of Broadway and big city lights. And their other friend is Pepper Smith, played by Julia Chan, and she is just an it girl, a well-connected socialite. And I think they're teasing at her being an Anna Delvey style character where, I don't know if y'all read that, the cut article on Anna Delvey, this woman that basically tricked New York social elite to fund an incredibly wealthy lifestyle for her. But I think that that's where they're going with Pepper Smith. Which would be fun and add a nice twist. And some conflict. So that's a good point. There wasn't as much conflict as you would expect in a TV show. So with Katie, her main conflict was she wanted to get this promotion so she could be a personal shopper at Lacey's. It's what she's been working for. She talks about wanting to work there since she was growing up, sewing clothes with her mom. On the Lower East Side. Yeah, she's supposedly a poor New York girl. And her sad moment, and this isn't really a spoiler, she doesn't get the job, but she gets a different job. And even better things happen with her other relationships. And life is great. And all of the characters have somewhat similar arcs. Honestly, Josie probably had it the worst. She certainly did. So we can talk about Josie a little bit. She met with Alexander Cabot, played by Lucien Laviscount, and he discovers her in a park where she is singing with a strange woman, which again, idealistic New York moment. She is walking around the park. This woman is singing and goes, I can tell it's your first time in the city. And she goes, oh. And then she sits down and sings with her and she's discovered by a record executive. So he is part of the Cabot family, which is a legendary entertainment family. And his sister, Alexandra Cabot, played by Camilla Hyde, actually is an SVP at Cabot Entertainment and trying to work her way up and is a client at Lacey's. According to Katie Keene, she spends $100,000 a month on her skincare. I think the only storyline that wasn't resolved per se is Josie's because Alexander presents her music to record executives and they're not into it, led by Alexander Cabot not being into it. Hard pass. Even then, it can't hurt to have that guy in your corner, so I think she'll be okay. She's now well-connected and still talented and still has her motivation and passion. 48 hours into living in New York. She's off to a great start after leaving the murder capital of the world, as she describes Riverdale. Which is facts. It is. Which brings up something I just want to quickly ask because I'm a little confused. This show is confirmed to be set five years after Riverdale. Yes. And Josie mentions like, oh, back in high school, they still mention Veronica. But do you know when that five year clock started? Have we hit the point where the clock starts? I also thought that Josie was considering New York after high school. Yeah. So I was surprised that her first day in New York was five years from when she was 16. Who knows how old she was. So is it a post-college universe? I can't tell. But honestly, that's one thing they do really well in the Riverdale universe is you have no sense of time because they use iPhones, but everything looks like it's from the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Oh, that's a good point. Josie, Katie, and all of them, they must be post-college, but they come across like they have a very youthful college-like lifestyle. Because they were playing high schoolers seven minutes ago. Yeah. I was interested to see how they would age Josie up because it's the same person now playing not a 16-year-old anymore. 
I don't think they even tried. They were just like, five years have passed, accept it. So overall, did you like Katie? Do you want to see her on her journey to become a fashion designer? And did you like her clothes? Supposedly, she designed basically everything she was wearing. I liked the clothes that she designed for Ginger Lopez. Her own clothes seemed kind of regular. So there's a scene (laughs) where... Again, the Riverdale universe knows how to mess you up on time, but they also know how to name people. Where Prince Errol Swoon brings in his girlfriend to get clothes at Lacey's, and she has this connecting moment with Katie and asks her where she got her dress from, and Katie is like, oh, I designed it. But it was a pink tweed dress, and one that I've seen in a ton of places, I think. That style, I would say. So I feel like if you're making a show where someone is this incredible designer, then show out a little bit with their clothes so that we go, oh my gosh, versus, wow, you made a dress that looks very nice, but also looks like something that is accessible to me. It doesn't feel new. True. She did have one outfit I thought was cool. She poses as Josie's manager and wears like a pantsuit, which was very much like Allegra's in Briarpatch. That outfit was fire. And I don't think that her clothes were bad in other scenes at all. I just thought they felt accessible. So are you excited about her journey or is this making you lukewarm about what fashion she'll create? I hope to see even cooler things in the future. With her new role that she gets at Lacey's, I think we'll have more of an opportunity to witness her creativity and how it'll hopefully grow. I actually am interested to see where that goes. I also personally think that she will throw in a little music into our possible avenues of success because I know Lucy Hale, the actress, likes to sing. Mm. So I can see her doing a duet with Josie at some point in the future, just because. All right, Beach. what would you give the CW's Katie Keene? I'm going to break outside of our mold and simply say I will give it one more episode. I think they need more time to build up the conflict. They spent a lot of time introducing us to the characters who are all interesting and set their paths for us. But now I need to see what are Katie's struggles going to be? What are they going to do with Josie who was underutilized on Riverdale? And they just need a little more time for that. And I will give them that one more episode to do so. What about you? I completely agree. I'm just waiting for conflict. That's the title of a book. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here to fight. That's the sequel. Speaking of building your way toward dreams, let's talk about Fox's Lego Master. This is a cool competition series. Reminds me a lot of the Food Network cake or cupcake shows. The idea is host Will Arnett is pitting teams of two against each other. Each week they have a theme. This first week is a theme park and the teams have a set amount of time with essentially an unlimited supply of Lego bricks to build structures, working machines, all to fit the challenge. And I thought this was a cool way to bring a very well-known toy to mainstream TV and then throw in that reality TV spin. How did you feel about Will Arnett as the host? He was very casual with how he spoke to the contestants. And I just didn't feel that energy or passion for Lego that you might expect from a host where I hate to bring up Food Network again, but typically the hosts on that are at least very enthusiastic or maybe even have experience in the field of baking. So they could have hired a Lego community influencer instead. 
I get why they chose him because of Batman, but I agree. I'm not sure if he can even help it. He just has such a disaffected voice that I think he has to work harder to convey enthusiasm. And it just felt like he wasn't into it. But I also feel as someone who watches BoJack Horseman that I don't know that I can associate that voice with joy unless he really goes over the top with it. And I think his shtick is to be a little disinterested. I think that's the role he's chosen for this. Because Jamie and Amy are all in. Are brick masters. Jamie and Amy are the Beyonce's of the Lego community. And I say that because when they walked into the room, listeners, y'all need to see the clip of when Beyonce walked into the Golden Globes or recently when she walked into this lecture hall at Columbia University where Jay-Z was giving an interview. Both times you just hear <gasps> just a collective gasp of Beyonce is here. And that's exactly the energy that those contestants gave to Jamie and Amy. Within the Lego community, Jamie and Amy, they're a legend as described by the contestants. To that community, this is a big deal. Did any contestants stick out to you? I'd say my favorite team so far are the Bearded Builders. They're two guys from Portland, both with beards, and they bonded over the fact that they're adults with beards who like Legos. I think they literally said they looked up and they saw another adult in the Lego aisle, and they were just excited to see not a child there. And that's how the magic happened. They built a really cool lumberjack land as well. Who did you like? I liked two pairs, both of which struggled in this first episode, but I just liked their personalities. I loved Jesse and Kara from the Ozarks. They wanted to do something with ducks, and then they settled on a Journey Through Dreams motif for their Lego build. And they said something to the effect of, we were done raising our kids, so we picked up the Legos. And I just loved that. They're hair could be its own show just as a concept and they took up their shoes they got real comfy and i loved manny and nestor i'm a sucker for a heartwarming moment on a show and that was a father-son team that loved each other and the father was just so excited that his son invited him to be part of this competition even though he wasn't a lego master they wore matching lego watches yes But speaking of, there were some pairs where people maximized their partners, so made sure that the partner would be someone who can build because money is on the line or something. And there were other pairs that were just like, I brought my dad, I brought my wife, I brought a friend, and I just don't understand the logic. Are you dancing around Sam and Jessica, our interesting pair of artists who met somehow through the Lego community, but had never built together, never worked together, period? If I knew money was on the line, honestly, even just my pride, I don't know that I would be like, you know what, let me just take a friend. And even if we've never worked together, or it sounds like met in person, surely we'll find the magic along the way. Wouldn't you meet ahead of time? Because probably the investment is worth it. Yeah, practice a few builds. Drills, figure out how each other communicates, which is a big issue. Come up with some ideas ahead of time so you're ready. 
Yes. No, not everyone was like our winning group. And we'll explain why winning doesn't really matter in this first episode. Our winning group who had one guy who's the leader, he literally recruited his friend who teaches engineering with Lego bricks. Because that's how you do it. If I were recruited to be on this show, I would put out an ad for a Lego builder because we need to maximize our options. So of course, the two people that did the best in this show, one of which is literally an engineer who works with Legos. Come on. And then other people choose, I'm just going to bring my wife. Come on. (laughs) Ridiculous. Or the brothers. We used to build Lego as kids. So we'll do it again. Y'all need to feel comfortable with sending one brother because one of you made it through and then bringing a stranger who's very good at this. They weren't thinking, but maybe the prize just wasn't enough because this week's prize was just immunity, a golden brick that protects you in the future. Y'all, they played these people. They brought in a Lamborghini and then opened the trunk of the Lamborghini when they said, this is not the prize. It's in the trunk. They opened the trunk. There are stacks of $100 bills in there. They go, that's not the prize. They open up this little sack. There's a (laughs) tiny little golden brick in it. BJ and I were like, oh, can you flip the brick? Like, is it actually golden? Can you sell it? What's going on here? No, just immunity. That's another thing. I thought this show would be chopped style where it's sometimes there's through lines of the champions of episodes will compete against each other, but there's a determined winner at the end. And I was surprised that this show is elimination style like American Idol, where you pare down until there's a pair of winners because there's teams of two. I guess I didn't assume how they were going to go with the structure of eliminations. It just felt like a serious format for a Lego show. They are taking this very seriously. I appreciate this elimination style because it's going to give us more time to meet contestants. There were a lot of teams in this first episode. And they all have big personalities. And I would like to have some more time to get to know them. I agree. So did any of the final structures stand out to you? The one created by the engineer who (laughs) teaches using Legos was very good. I also liked the structure from the guys that you loved, the Timber Town. And I also liked the Pharaoh Sands one. I couldn't tell if that was a reference to the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity, but Mel and Jermaine did that one. And the judges talked about how that was the one thematically that was most well realized through the design of it as well. And I love that they put in those extra touches. Those are all great choices. I actually liked Tyler and Amy, the married couple. They did a farmland themed one with an egg drop. And I also didn't realize that the motors you use with Legos can be controlled with your phone. Did you notice that? Yes, I did not know that either. But I was very surprised that they were using their iPhones. Legos have graduated tremendously from when I took robotics as a child. You haven't been keeping up with the latest Lego technology? No, but should I get called on this show? I certainly (laughs) would. And I certainly wouldn't show up with someone and be like, all right, how do you like to be talked to? Positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement? Would I not be your first choice? I think you and I love each other enough that we know that we couldn't take each other. Because I would knock over your poorly constructed structures and be like, me too. We got 10 hours. Start over. <laughs> we're not losing this. <laughs> if one of us were picked for a show like that, we're both very logical people. And I think we would then be like, all right, let's put our heads together and find someone smart to take with us. We'd have to be recruited as a team with no choice to choose someone else. <laughs> we would have to be forced to work together. <laughs> and then I'm doing drills nonstop. Oh, we're buying a lot of Legos to prepare for this. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Show.
Legos are expensive, though. Yeah, we'll have to figure something out. Maybe we could just go to the Lego store every day. Don't mind us. We're still shopping. All right, Beach. You ready to rate? Yes. Me too. What would you give Lego Masters on Fox? I'd watch again casually. I don't think that this show is quite compelling enough that you want to see all of the drama in each of the episodes, but it's certainly like a chopped where if I'm flipping channels, I'm definitely getting sucked in for the latter half. The things that they were able to create were so fascinating that I would be happy to see what they're able to create. I would also watch again casually. I don't think it was that interesting watching them build the structures, but the final 15 minutes, that's where it's worth it to see the structures, see them explain their ideas. They also use some animation to bring everyone's builds to life. That was the highlight. All right, Beach, where can people find more episodes of the Pilot Podcast? You can find more of our reviews on our website at thepilotpodcast.com. And if you want to get some special episodes where we take a deep dive and focus on a single pilot episode, subscribe to the Pilot Podcast Deep Dive at join.thepilotpodcast.com. Our latest one is up and it is a review of Apple TV's C. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at the Pilot Pod. You can send thoughts, feelings, show suggestions, questions, pictures of any cool Lego builds you've done. Would love to see those to askthepilotpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.